0: Amen. (laughs) Cancer, cancer does suck, but Christ is better. What a beautiful statement of faith uh, out of the mouth, the very plain speak of an American teenager. Um, Cancer in this life with Christ is better than any kind of prosperity, any kind of health without him. John and Christine, his parents um, and their family are a part of our church. Uh, we um, celebrated mourned the funeral um, about three weeks ago. I-, I wanted to share with you this weekend um, the passage of scripture that I preached at his funeral for two different reasons. Number one, um, this is the beginning of what we call Passion Week, which is the week that commemorates the day that Jesus died on Friday and then um, Easter Sunday, the day that he resurrected. And so I cannot think of a better passage to um, get into than the one we're gonna get into that I shared at Noah's funeral. Um, But the second reason I wanted to share this particular passage with you is that our lives are filled with a lot of pain. Uh, Many of you are going through your own dark valley. Uh, Maybe it is similar to what Noah and his family went through. Maybe it is worse. Maybe it is not nearly as bad. But our lives are filled with a lot of pain And some of you are walking through valleys that are so dark that you can barely speak about them. And so I want to explain to you where hope comes from in that kind of valley. You see, the question is not if you walk through that kind of valley, the question is simply when. I've heard um, it said that the average American goes through some kind of life crisis, whether that's in your life or the life of someone that is close to you, about every 10 years. So if you are not in one now, there is a time coming when you will go through one, and you are going to need to understand some of the things that I'm going to share with you that come out of the last week of Jesus' life um, desperately in order for you to be able to walk through that with hope. If you are not a Christian this weekend, I would implore you to listen very carefully to what I am about to say and to ask yourself some very serious questions. And that question is, when this time comes— When this time comes, because there is nothing like death or suffering that gives you a certain sobriety and clarity about life, when this time — not if it comes, but when it comes — Are you going to have any kind of hope that sustains you when there is no future for your stock market, when there is no prognosis that is good about your health, when there's nothing that you can see that resolves the situation? Do you have a hope that goes beyond the problem? Do you have a hope that goes deeper than even the grave itself? Mark chapter 14, if you have a Bible, Mark 14, we're going to begin in verse 32. And for those of you who say, well, what happened to us going through the book of Acts? Um, well, um, we got to where I wanted to get to in Acts, Acts chapter 12, and so we're going to um, temporarily suspend that because next week at Easter I'm starting a, a little mini-series about the difficult things that Jesus said and how we understand life by understanding some of the most difficult things He said. Um, and then we're going to, in the summer, come back and we're going to finish up the book of Acts over the summer. So that's what's happening there. Um, so for you Type A people that could not have listened to another word that I was going to say until we had that question answered, there you have it. Um, I will confess to you that where we were about to go in Mark chapter fourteen this weekend is a deeply mysterious place. I would say it is one of the most mysterious places in all of Scripture. It is a holy place. It is the kind of place, honestly, that I get a sense that I ought to come into on my knees because there is nothing that I could say here that would do anything really except for take away of the majesty of what is happening in these verses. The apostle Paul called the things that we are about to look into, he called them the unsearchable riches of Christ. If they are unsearchable, then who am I to stand up here and try to search them out with you? Paul said that these were things That you could not know, Paul in fact prayed this in Ephesians 3, that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we could know the love of Christ, how wide, how high, how long, how deep is this love, which surpasses all knowledge. When you think about it, it's kind of a contradiction. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? What Paul means is that what you need is not a good explanation of these things, what you need is revelation of these things. I am unable to give you revelation. I can give you explanation, but only the Holy Spirit can give you revelation, which is why we need to pray. You see, I feel especially helpless this weekend to share these things with you because a lot of times when I stand up here, I've got a concept to communicate. I've figured out how to explain it, how to apply it. Got a few funny stories that go along with it. Um, I got none of that this morning. None of it. I don't have a lot of application. Don't have a lot of explanation, they'll have a lot of, they don't have any funny stories that I know of, which means that if the Holy Spirit, the real preacher, does not open this in your heart, I could stand up here all day long and talk with the most eloquent words, and you could sit out there and listen as attentively as you want to, and it's not going to do either of us any good. So could we just pray and ask God to open the eyes of our heart and allow us to see what human ears cannot hear and to, to perceive what a human tongue cannot explain? Why don't you bow your heads, if you would, at all of our campuses? bow your heads with me. God, I think what Paul said in Ephesians 3, how do I explain the unsearchable riches of Christ? God, I pray that a spirit of revelation would be given this weekend that we might know how high, how wide, how deep, how long is the love that you have for us. We need not explanation. God, we need revelation. So Father, I pray that you might give that. I pray, God, that we might be overwhelmed. God, as we look into a well that is deeper and wider than we ever have imagined, and that we might sense, not know, but sense deep in our soul, the love that presses in, that is communicated in this mysterious scene. I pray and ask that God in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they, that is the disciples and Jesus, went to a place called Gethsemane, which literally in Aramaic means oil press. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going on a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, father, daddy, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand, and he lifted up his eyes, and the disciples looked, and they're coming in the distance with torches, in the night was Judas and a group of armed soldiers coming to take Jesus away to the crucifixion. Now, one of the first things that you have to observe about this scene, if I could be so bold with you, is that Jesus does not die like many of the world's great heroes have died. He does not have the defiance, the bravado, the bravery that we would expect for him to carry into the hour of his death. We're used to some of the world's great heroes dying with their fist in the face of the evil empire saying, you don't scare me. I mean, think of of scenes like the ones depicted in movies like Gladiator or Braveheart, where you've got a hero that is staring down the emperor saying, you can do whatever you want to me. I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. You do not scare me. You cannot touch me. Many Jewish heroes died that way. Uh, We know the same time that Jesus died, there were a lot of Jewish heroes that were executed, and a lot of them would die on the cross proclaiming God's victory over their enemies and the coming judgment on, on God's enemies. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, Socrates, Plato, when Plato describes Socrates dying, um, he says that, you know, when he was given the hemlock to drink, says the color in his face did not change. He was very calm. He even cracked a few jokes after he drank the hemlock. That was his way of defying the empire. Um, Polycarp, one of Jesus's own disciples that would die shortly after Jesus. Polycarp was a student of the apostle John. When he died, he was 86 years old. They came and brought him, drug him out to be burned at the stake, and they got him in front of this entire Roman Colosseum. Polycarp's last words, 86 years old, he took him up, tied him at the stake. Before they tied his hands down, he gestured to the crowd. He said, you think I'm afraid of this fire? You ought to be afraid of the fires that burn in hell. This doesn't scare me at all. This is temporary. In a few moments, I will be standing before Jesus. Come on, boys, bring on the fire. But that's not, if you're honest, how Jesus goes into this scene, is it? He appears weak, dare I say. Almost scared. Did you you catch that? He's trembling. And what's really strange about it is that everywhere else, everywhere else in the Gospels, Jesus shows unflinching courage in the face of danger. He was the one just a few chapters before that the disciples were saying, you can't go to Jerusalem, you'll die. And Jesus said, nope. And he set his face, Mark said, like a flint toward Jerusalem, and he could not be deterred. He was the one that always had courage. He was the one that defied everything. What is he doing now? And by the way, it's not like he's withering in the face of pain because the first aspect of torture has yet to begin. Verse 33, there's a very strange little phrase, says he began to be astonished and troubled. In Greek, literally what it says is suddenly he began to be astonished all at once. In other words, there was something there in verse 33 that had not been there in verse 32. Suddenly, all at once, he saw something and he was, it says, troubled by it. The word troubled is a very strong Greek word that means overcome with shocking horror. One scholar says it indicates the kind of feeling that you would have if you came home one evening and found your entire family murdered, mutilated, strung up against a wall. That is the word that's being communicated here. When Jesus saw it, all at once, it was so overwhelming to him, listen, that he almost died from it. Do you see that, verse 34? He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus does not exaggerate. He almost died. What he saw almost killed him. Luke says that he was under such strain that he began to sweat great drops of blood, a medical condition that doctors call hematridosis. Where you are under such strain of some kind that the capillaries in your body burst under the strain. One of our pastors, Rodale, told me, this has happened about two years ago, said his wife and his three sons, the youngest of whom was three years old, were leaving the neighborhood pool where they were swimming. They were the last ones there. His wife gets the three boys out to the van, and she's putting in the older one, and then the, the, the middle one, she notices that her younger son is not there. So she kind of walks back down the path, goes into the pool area, and saw something that no parent, I mean, this is like the worst scene a parent could ever imagine seeing. There is her three-year-old son lying still at the bottom of the pool. She jumped in, got him out, yelled, got somebody else's attention. They got this boy up on the the deck. They administered CPR with him, called the ambulance. Miraculously, they're able to revive him. The ambulance comes, picks him up, takes him to the hospital. They run all kinds of tests on him. You know, the, the short answer, the good news is he, he, he was fine. They got there just in the, in the, the right amount of time. Roddell was not with him. Roddell said, I came back, got to the hospital. He says, when I walked into the, ho- the room, my son was lying there now asleep, my three-year-old, and I could see on his face. He said, I looked very closely, and all these little purple blotches everywhere all over his face, and I asked the doctor, what is this? And the doctor said, evidently, right before your son lost consciousness at the bottom of the pool, he was screaming for you or for his mom, and he was screaming with such strain that the capillaries in his face burst under the strain of not being able to get the attention of his father. I cannot imagine my kids being under such strain that they were calling out for me in that way, and I could not hear them, here is the son of God who spoke the worlds into existence, who created universes as easily as you and I speak words, who walked on top of angry waves, who spoke to storms and they dissipated, who would speak to a legion of demons and they would flee, who spoke to people with the gravest diseases and they would be healed, who called to dead men in their graves and they got up. Here is that son of God crying out under such strain that the capillaries in his face begin to burst. What did he see? What did he see? Keep reading, verse 36. Notice what he prays, Abba, Father, Daddy. All things are possible for you, remove this cup from me. He calls God Daddy, Abba, Abba, Daddy, which is the term of closest intimacy with God. But look at this: For the first time in his life, for the first time in eternity, there is no response. See in verse 37? Actually, what you don't see in verse 37? Silence. You see, up until this point, he has enjoyed an intimacy with the Father. He often withdrew to be alone with God. To draw strength, and the Father had always radiated with openness to him, sometimes even affirming him publicly, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Yet now, in the hour that Jesus needs his Father most, only silence. And so he stumbles back to his disciples, looking for some kind of comfort. I mean, there's something weak there, is there not? It's, it's tender. He just needs somebody, and they're asleep. So he wakes them up and he says, guys, I need, I need something. I need somebody. I need you to be with me. But they're asleep. And so verse 39, he goes back again to the father and he says the exact same thing. And again, a second time, only silence. What's happening here? What's happening? William Lane, New Testament scholar, says that the only explanation is that God had already begun to turn his face away. The crucifixion had already started before the first nail was driven into Jesus' body. His soul had been abandoned by God. Jesus had lived his life, you see, for the approval of the Father. And now, in the moment that Jesus needed his Father most, God, the Father, turned his face away. And Jesus staggered under the weight of it, almost to the point of death. William Lane says, this is the horror of one who lived wholly for the Father, who came to be with his Father for a brief interlude before his death and found hell rather than heaven open before him. Utter and total aloneness. Have you ever been really alone? I mean really alone. Maybe a close friend turned their back on you. Maybe a spouse betrayed you. Maybe your parents failed you. Maybe your kids no longer allow you to see your grandkids. Jesus felt that kind of aloneness. And not just aloneness, by the way, but rejection. You ever been really rejected? Here's one thing I know. The closer the relationship, the more painful the rejection. I mean, I I get letters of rejection from time to time as a public figure. I mean, I get letters from people I've never met telling me that I'm the worst possible person. It it honestly doesn't bother me that much because I've never met this person, and I know that it's really not reflective of me, it's reflective of them. But you let a close friend do that, you let somebody in my family do that, then it becomes much more painful. I mean, I think about what it'd be like to do this to one of my kids. One of my kids who look to me in the moment that they're in pain, when the moment that they're hurting, when the moment they feel alone, turning to me and not only not being there for them, but also walking away from them, walking away in scorn and saying, you're not even my child. I'm not a perfect father and I've only known my kids for a limited amount of time. What's it like to lose the affection and the closeness and the intimacy that he had known with God the Father for all eternity. Is there any human analogy I could give that could come up with something that would communicate that? There is none. Anything that I would say by way of analogy just takes away from the majesty of what's actually happening in this moment, the tragedy. Somehow in that one moment, Jesus experienced the equivalent of an eternity in hell for us. And in that moment, Revelation says, all of the hay of heaven fell silent, all the angels, and put their hands over their mouths and did not know what to say because they could not comprehend what was happening. Hymn writers, sensing the majesty of the moment, say things like this Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore this strange design? In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Or a more recent worship song that we used to sing here. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. There are probably no words we ever seen that have greater truth in them than those words. I'll never really know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. In Gethsemane, Jesus stared into the horror of hell, and he almost died from it, and then he voluntarily went into it for us. You see, that's what hell is. Hell is complete abandonment by God. You see, I'd always thought that what made Jesus' death so bad were the physical horrors that went along with it, and they were terrible. Cicero said that one of the Romans' goals in crucifixion was complete and utter humiliation. So they would choose a public place like the mall for us, and there they would strip men naked and they would beat them and they would crucify them. It was so painful that men would weep and vomit and urinate all over themselves, Cicero said they would precede it by a beating that killed a lot of men before they ever got to the cross. The Roman historian Cicero said that it was not uncommon to see a a, a rib off of a man's frame go flying off of his chest because of the way that they beat them. If what Cicero says is true, then we are pretty sure that when Jesus went to the cross, he was at least partially disemboweled. Isaiah would say that he didn't even look like a man. He was unrecognizable. You would walk up to him and know or not know who he was. That's what Isaiah says, how badly he had been beaten. Many of you have seen the Passion movie. There's probably something in there that gives you a glimpse of a little bit of it, but if what Cicero says is true, then it's much worse. Cicero said that they used to, when they really wanted to make a point, they would crucify women. He says, but when they crucified women, they'd always turn them around backwards so they were facing the cross because the Roman soldiers could not bear to see the look of anguish on the woman's face because of the kind of pain they put them through. Jesus was nailed up on a cross naked in a public place in the full light of day. So yes, the physical horrors of of the cross were terrible, but listen, that is not in Gethsemane what made Jesus stagger. It was the abandonment by God that he faced that was the horror of the cross for him. In Gethsemane, Jesus looked full into the cup of God's wrath and it overwhelmed him so badly that it almost killed him. And he said, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Isaiah fifty-one seventeen describes the wrath of God given to us like a cup, a cup full of toxic poison that was the wrath of God for the rebellion that you and I had lived with, for the way that we had chosen our way instead of God's way but the fact that we wanted to make our own rules, the fact that we didn't want to give God glory, we wanted to give ourselves glory, that God's righteous wrath, the wrath we deserved, was stored up in a cup that he was going to give to us. And Jesus in Gethsemane stepped in the way and said, no, I'll take it for him. I think it was Jonathan Edwards who said that the wrath of God was stored up for us, rightful wrath of God like water behind a dam. I, I imagine you're standing in front of a gigantic dam, think like the Hoover Dam or something, and as you're standing you know, a mile or so away from it, You watch and to your horror there, you see this crack begin to come down the the top of the dam, and in a matter of a few seconds, the entire dam is broken open, and water, a wall of water, several hundred feet high, comes flooding down that valley. There's nowhere for you to run, there's nowhere to go, death is certain, it's going to sweep you away, and then as this wall, this 200-foot wall of water is coming at you, the ground in front of your feet suddenly splits open and opens up, and all the water goes underneath it so that not a drop touches you. Jesus stood in the way of the wrath of God. He took the cup, he took it in our place, he drank it to the dregs, he turned it over, set it down, and said, it is finished. By the way, would you really, would you really entertain the idea that there are multiple ways to God? As if God, you know, Jesus says to God, um, if there's any other way, let the cup pass from me, and God's like, well, actually, there is a, another way. There's actually lots of other ways. You just gotta be a good person, be sincere. You'll be there fine. What greater insult could you possibly give to Jesus Christ? Here he is in the hour when he calls out for his daddy. If there's any other way, and God said there is no other way, God had determined to save us, and this was the only way. If you and I had been in that garden, and we had stood beside Jesus and said, no, no, don't touch this, Jesus would have said, I have to. This cup is your cup, and I am drinking it in your place so that you will not have to. He was despised and rejected of men. He was in this garden, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely, though, he was bearing our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The price of our peace was upon him so that by his stripes we would be healed. All we like sheep, you see, had gone astray. He had turned every one of us, we had turned everyone to our own way. So the Lord laid on him in that moment the iniquity of us all. He drank that cup in my place so that not a drop would be left for me. You see, that's what the gospel is. In its purest essence, the gospel is one word, substitution. The way we say it around here is four words, Jesus in my place. Jesus drank the cup that I deserved. He had lived the life that I should have lived. He died the death that I should have died. He drank this cup in my place so that no condemnation will be left for me because now I'm in Christ Jesus. It's not that God is just feeling merciful to me now. It's not that he's in a good mood. It's that every bit of the condemnation got poured onto Jesus, so there's nothing left for me. And it's offered to you and I as a gift. Here's the question, have you received it personally? Because it's a gift. It's a gift where he t- somebody will pay for your sin. Either you will drink this cup on your own, a cup that was so bad that it almost killed Jesus just looking at it, or Jesus will take it in your place. Have you received it as your own? That's what Gethsemane meant for you and what it meant for your salvation. Now, let me tell you what it means for you as you walk through the dark valleys of pain and loneliness. And then I want to tell you really quickly right toward the end what it means for us as we think about the mission that God has given to us. Here's number one. I'm going to borrow the words of another pastor here for this first point. Number one, you must stand amazed at his love for you in his darkest hour. You must stand amazed at his love for you in his darkest hour. The cross, Paul says, put on display for us the depth of the love of God. That's why the angels, Peter said, long to look into it, because in there they saw something about the love of God that could not be captured in words. The angels who look into God's face every day long to get a greater glimpse into what you and I are looking into right now. Jonathan Edwards asked this question. Think about this. He said, why why is it that the Father gave Jesus this glimpse before he got to the cross? Why show Jesus in Gethsemane? Why give him a glimpse of it before he gets there? In fact, he said, you think about it, it's actually kind of dangerous because maybe Jesus could have changed his mind having seen it. Why? Why did he give Jesus a glimpse before? Why not wait till he was securely fastened to the cross before giving him that glimpse? Here was his answer. It was so, watch this, we could see Jesus go to the cross voluntarily, knowing full well what he was about to experience so that his love for us would be put on display even more. The circumstances of the cross were designed to put God's love for you on display. God turned his back on his most beloved son because God so loved the world, you. How do you know that? That he gave his only son to save it. The Gospel of Luke says that right toward the end of this encounter, an angel came to minister to Jesus. I've always thought that was, what did the angel say? How did the angel minister to Jesus in that moment? Give him a future John Piper book about suffering? Read a few chapters out of this, this will help. We don't know. We don't know what the angel said. But I wonder if Hebrews 12, 2 gives us a a hint. Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy, listen to this. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Joy. Maybe he said something that helped give Jesus joy as he went to the cross. Well, the joy of what? The joy of what? Well, here's another way of asking that. What was the one thing that Jesus would have after the cross that he did not have before? What was the joy set before him that gave him the capacity to endure? What would he obtain on that side of the cross that he did not have on this side of the cross? What was that thing? The approval of God, the pleasure of God? Already had that. The kingship of the universe? Already his. What was the one thing that he would have after the cross that he did not have before it? You. You. He was doing this to save you. Isaiah 43 says he went to the cross because we were precious in his sight. Precious, I've told you that word means you give up anything else on earth for it. I told you my kids are precious to me. There's nothing on earth that I have that I would not give up for my children if I found out that my children had a disease a disease that could not be cured except by one medicine, a medicine that had not been approved by insurance. And the doctor said, to get this medicine, you're going to have to sell everything that you ever had, everything you're ever going to have, and go into debt for the rest of your life. Without the slightest hesitation, I would turn my back on all of it to obtain that medicine. Why? Because my children are precious to me. Isaiah 43:4. the God who created the universe, who could have created 10 million more universes with just a word, That God thought of you as precious. Isaiah 43, 4, I gave up the world for you. 1 John 3, 1, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. See, sometimes there's not explanation. That's what John said. You just behold it. You just behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord, upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Or an older hymn that we don't sing much anymore. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole. they stretch from sky to sky. There is, there is no explanation. You just kind of feel it, and you get a sense of it. I, I, the, the, the moment in your life that you have experienced this the most, maybe it came to another person. Maybe it was the love. He had a good father. Maybe it was a good father's love, and you thought this is something like the love of God. I see what it reminds me of. It reminds me when I'm at my, with my kids at the beach, and you know, they're young, they're not great swimmers, yeah, not strong swimmers, and so we go out, and all of a sudden the wave comes, and it, you know, comes over their head, and they're, they're kind of distraught, and and one of them will say to me, daddy, too deep, too deep, daddy, how deep, it's just too deep out here, and I'm like, we're in four and a half feet of water, (laughs) and about, you know, not far out that way, it's six miles down, you're thinking four and a half feet is deep, You have no concept of the depth. The greatest you've ever experienced this is like one of my children saying that when the love of God is deeper and wider and longer and richer than you and I have ever possibly comprehended, you stand amazed by His love for you in in His darkest hour. And that leads you to number two. You believe in His love for you in your darkest hour. You believe in His love for you in your darkest hour. You see, because Jesus faced utter aloneness, because he was rejected by God in my place, I, listen, never have to fear really being forsaken by God. Because that's what the whole idea of substitution is. He took my place. He took my condemnation. He took any rejection, any aloneness that I deserved. He took it so now I can say there is no condemnation for me who is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because all the condemnation, the entire cup was taken by Jesus. For God to give me a cup of condemnation would act like Jesus hadn't done it. So now I say there's no condemnation. It's not that God is just favorably disposed to me. It's that there's nothing left. He took it all in my place so that now when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I can say I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me and you took the evil in my place. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Why? Because evil and wrath were taken by Jesus, so goodness and mercy would be left for me surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's not a nursery rhyme. That is a reflection on what happened to Gethsemane. There's nothing left for me but goodness and mercy, nothing. I know many of you have gone through some tremendously terrible things. And I knew that during those times, it felt like God had abandoned you, like you were alone. You weren't. This shows it. It's even popular among Christians. I've heard some say this. I'm just going through my Gethsemane. I do not mean to minimize your pain, but no, you are not. You will never have a Gethsemane, never, because Jesus went through the only one. You will never be forsaken because he was forsaken so that you would never be. So when you say, where is God? Why didn't he stop this? Why didn't he do something? I talked to a guy this week who said that. Where was God when my dad died? Where was God when the church that I was a part of turned its back on my mother, now a widow, Where was God? Why wasn't he doing something about that? Gethsemane shows you that the one thing you never need to doubt is his love. This is where he was. John Owen said that in light of the cross, the greatest unkindness you could ever give to God is to doubt the intensity of his love for you. We do not understand all that God is doing in our darkest hour any more than the disciples understood what was happening here. But we can never, we must never doubt his love. While we slept in sin... He voluntarily went into hell for us. You ever feel like God's sleeping in your life? you feel like, where's God? I feel like he's asleep. See, what this garden shows you is actually the opposite. While you and I were sleeping comfortably in sin, that's the very moment that Jesus was awake all by himself. And that's where he went into hell voluntarily while you slept. So when you feel alone, when you feel like nobody cares, when you feel like you are forgotten, look to the God of Gethsemane. If God did not abandon you at this point, when hell was literally squeezing the life out of him, do you really think he would abandon you now? If you feel abandoned by God, you're wrong. You have to be. You see, on a sunny hillside in Galilee, Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, And then in the dark garden of Gethsemane, he taught us to pray, our father, my father, who has went through hell for me. Therefore, I know that he can never forsake me. He never could because he didn't do it at this moment. Isaiah would ask it this way, can a mother forget the baby at her breast or have no compassion on the child she's born? Is that even possible? That's what Isaiah is asking. Is it even possible for a woman who just gave birth to a baby to be so callous and hard toward that baby that she forgets that baby? Isaiah answers this question, though she may forget, Maybe there's a situation where even that tender of a relationship, maybe there has been a situation where even that relationship had been forfeited, yet I will not ever forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. You see, maybe you have been forgotten or forsaken by the most tender human relationship. Maybe it was your mother. Maybe it was your father, maybe it was a spouse, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was your child, but your God, your Father, this Savior cannot and will not. He went through Gethsemane, he went through hell, and he has literally engraved you on the palms of his hands. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and or sorrow meet, or joy composed so rich a crown? Joy, joy of obtaining you. And so when you are discouraged and when you feel alone, when you feel abandoned, when you feel despondent, you have to come here, you have to come to the Garden of Gethsemane, and you have to preach the gospel that is presented here to yourself. you got to tell yourself, I feel abandoned, but I am not. The gospel of Gethsemane proves it. When we say preach the gospel to yourself, that's what we're talking about. David modeled this for us in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Some psalms are written to God. Some psalms are written to other people, right? Bless the Lord, all you people. Who did David write this psalm to? Himself, right? Bless the Lord, oh, not oh my people or oh my God, but bless the Lord, oh my soul. Don't you forget his benefits, he's telling himself. What you've gotta do is you have gotta come and say, bless the Lord, all my soul, don't forget his benefits. Like, when I was asleep in sin, that's when he went into hell for me. When I was condemned, that's when he took my condemnation. And you got to say to yourself, if he did not withhold his son in this moment, how would he not also freely with him give all things? Is there any good thing he would withhold from those of us who know him? Can anything separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? you got to preach the gospel to your despondent self. You need to stop listening. Listen, you need to stop listening to your fearful, doubting heart and start preaching the gospel to it listen, here's what people say. They're like, oh, well, you got to get in touch with yourself and kind of get down. That's the last thing you need to be getting in touch with. You don't want to be listening to what's going on out in there because that's a fallen heart and it will lie to you every single time. You got to stop listening to your fearful heart and you got to start preaching Gethsemane to your heart and do not mumble when you do it. Be long-winded if you have to. Be longer-winded than I am. And you defy those feelings of despondency with faith in the gospel of Gethsemane. And then you'll start to say things like this with Paul in pain, though the outward man perishes, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Though I am poor, yet in him I am rich. Though I have nothing, yet in him I possess all things. You stand amazed at his love for you demonstrated in his darkest hour, then you believe in his love for you in your darkest hour. Number three, what it means for our mission. We must read the Great Commission through the lens of Gethsemane. we got to read the Great Commission through the lens of Gethsemane. The Great Commission is that we would go and make disciples of all the nations. Here's one of the reasons I wanted to share this with you on the weekend leading up to Easter. Because during this week, many of you are going to have a chance like no other time in the year to be able to engage somebody that is outside of God, outside of Christ with the gospel, with the invitation to come here and hear the gospel. And you need to understand that the God you are asking to give you help is the Savior of Gethsemane. Is there anything that you could ask that would exhaust the limits of his matchless love? Do you realize what Gethsemane shows you about his willingness to save sinners? Is there anything too great to ask him? Is there any help you could not call in his name for? Last week, or excuse me, last year, I did a series on prayer. And I told you a story about Alexander the Great. Do you remember this? One of Alexander the Great's generals, after serving him for 30-some years, comes to Alexander the Great and says, I've served you for 30 years. I've never really asked for anything. I've got one request on my retirement. Alexander said, ask. He said, I'd like for you to pay for the the wedding of my daughter. Alexander said, that sounds fair to me. Go tell the treasurer what you need. We'll cover the wedding. Treasurer comes to him two or three days later, said, I understand you authorized paying for this wedding. General, or the treasurer said, yes, or Alexander said, yes, I did. He said, I think this guy's trying to take advantage of you. Alexander said, what do you mean? He said, he has turned in He has turned in an invoice for the largest wedding I've not only ever seen, but I could ever imagine. I think he's invited everybody in Greece. He's got the most expensive food. He's got the most incredible entertainment. It is going to cost you, in our terms, millions of dollars. And I think you need to discipline him for asking that. And the story goes that Alexander kind of thought for a moment, then he smiled, said, no, don't discipline. Give him everything he asked. And the treasurer said, why? He's taking advantage of you. He's not taking advantage of me. He's honoring me. So what do you mean? He said, well, A, he thinks I'm rich enough to pay for this. B, he thinks I'm generous enough that I'd actually do it. He thinks if he thinks I'm that wealthy and that generous, then he honors me. You and I do not honor Jesus by asking for small things. When he has gone through Gethsemane, we honor him by asking for large things. That's why John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, said, thou art coming to a king, so with thee large petitions bring. For his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. Is there anything that you could not ask him, that he would not give you help? Do you want to see him work in the life of your friends? You want to see him work in your school? Why don't you come and take the gospel of Gethsemane seriously? And why don't you realize that this is the Savior who said, ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Is this Savior not ready? Is he not worthy? Is he not willing to see the nations worship? Isaiah 53, 11, God says, I will see the suffering of his soul, and I will be satisfied. You know what that means? It means there's nothing else you need to present to God that would coerce him to begin to work here on earth. He's satisfied in Jesus. There was one time I heard about um, one of our unreached people groups that it was a person not who wasn't from our church but a person, a Christian servant over there that was martyred. And I was praying for that unreached people group shortly after that and I said this to God. I said, God, this person has sacrificed their life. Please on their behalf now, please pour out your power it was one of those moments where I heard the Holy Spirit of God speak to my heart, and he said this, I understand what you're going for. Do not insult my son by acting like there was something else that would move my heart for these people that was greater than the sacrifice my son gave. I will see the suffering of his soul, and I will be satisfied. Jesus Christ shed his blood so the nations would worship. So here's my question for you, Summit Church. Do the size of your prayers mirror the size of his sacrifice. Jesus did not die so that you could ask him small things. He died so that you could ask him large things. He did not die so you could ask him for trinkets. He died so you could ask him for treasures. Is what you're pursuing with your life worthy of his sacrifice? Is what you're pursuing? Hey, listen, Jesus didn't die so that you could just get rich and live an easy life. Can I tell you why? I don't mean to harp on this. Can I tell you why I hate the prosperity gospel? Jesus did not go through Gethsemane so that you could just drive a new BMW. You faced the wrath of God. What you had lost was God. If Jesus just wanted to give you a BMW and a nicer house, he would have done something else. He went through Gethsemane because you... And i had the condemnation of hell upon us because we were separated from god because the one thing that we needed was to have god restored what i needed was not riches what i needed was not education what i needed was god and only gethsemane could obtain god for me so jesus gladly went through it so what i am laboring to pursue now is not riches what i'm laboring to pursue is the pleasure of god If Gethsemane is true, my life priorities have to be different, do they not? If Gethsemane is true, then it means that what I've got to bring to Jesus are the people that he died to save. It means there is no treasure that I can obtain on earth that you can contain in a 401k. The treasure are the people that he died to to obtain. Here's the way I say this, is what you're living for worth him dying for? There's a story I've told you for several years, I found out recently I got it wrong. Like a lot of good pastor stories, there's a little bit of truth in it, but the story I've told you goes like this. Um, A couple of first missionaries that left America to go to an island in the Caribbean were a couple of young Moravian missionaries in their early 20s. They'd heard about an island in the Caribbean that was filled with slaves. The owner was a deist, didn't believe in God, very agnostic, and so he, every time they asked him, can we go and live among these slaves and plant churches, they, he said no. So in the story that I told you, these two young men approached this slave owner and they said, we'd like to sell ourselves into slavery for the rest of our lives, we'll be your property so that we can live among these slaves and plant churches. And as the story goes, they, the owner accepted their offer, they were put into shackles like cattle, They were put on this slave ship, and as the slave ship pulled away from the shore, the last words heard from one of them as he lifted up his hands, and he pointed up at heaven, and he said, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. The real story is that there were two young Moravian missionaries. They did find out about an island of slaves. They did ask if they could go down there, and they did offer to have themselves sold into slavery. Where I get the story wrong is that the owner did not receive their offer. He said, I'm not going to do that. My reputation, he said, would be ruined. I'm not gonna do that. So what these two guys did is they went down and they lived in the colony next to this guy's colony. And for 50 years, they labored almost alone, trying to plant churches every time they could get. This guy named J.E. Hutton, History of the Moravian Church. Says the difficulties, the barrenness that they dealt with for year, for 20 years, they labored, no converts. There were difficulties on every hand. He says, however, 50 years later, they had established churches in St. Thomas, St. Croix, St. John's, Jamaica, Antigua, Barbados, and St. Kitts. They had 13,000 baptized converts before a missionary from any other church ever arrived on the scene. They did say, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. But listen to this, because I actually think the real story is better than the fake one. They didn't say it in one dramatic moment when they got on a slave ship. They said it with 50 years of their life when they kept pressing, when it seemed like there was no fruit. Do you understand that this Savior of Gethsemane is worth you continuing to pray, continuing to ask, continuing to knock, never giving up, and maybe talking to the same person for 50 years? Is he worthy to receive the reward of his suffering? I think that he is. And I think that whatever he has for you, whether it's to be taken away in a slave ship or whether it's to labor in obscurity for 50 years, he's worthy. Is what you're living for worth him dying for? Final question, have you personally received Christ as your Savior? This is an offer that you got to receive. It's got to be personal. you got to choose it. And if you've never done it, I want to give you a chance to do it this weekend because this is the greatest offer in the universe. You either inside Christ or outside Christ, that cup belongs to you or He took it for you. If you've never received it, I want to give you a chance. Why don't you bow your heads at all of our campuses. If you have never trusted Christ personally as your savior, I would invite you to pray a prayer like this one. These are not magic words. This is not something to repeat. But if it comes from your heart and you mean it, he will hear you. Jesus, you are Lord. I'm no longer in control of my life. You're in control of my life. You're the Lord. Jesus, you are Savior. I believe that you went to Gethsemane in the cross for me, and I received this gift as my own." Would you say those words to him? And all of our campuses, our teams are going to begin to come — you keep your heads bowed for just a minute, for the next few minutes actually — our teams are going to come and they're going to distribute the elements of what we call the Lord's Table. Bread and a cup that represent the body of Jesus. Keep your heads bowed. If you're a believer, I want you to take this bread and this cup, and I want you to hold it in your hands at all of our campuses, just hold it. And I want you to behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon you. And I want you to just let yourself be overwhelmed in the mystery. Can I say something special to you men? If you're unmoved by this, if you're unmoved by Gethsemane, maybe what you ought to be saying is, God, what's wrong with my calloused heart? And maybe what you ought to do is rend your heart and cry out to God and say, God, how am I so unfeeling that this act has not moved me more than anything else? If you're not a believer, these elements are not for you. You should not touch them any more than you should take my last name as your own. These are not, it's not like a grace bump. It doesn't you know, infuse grace into you. This is simply the celebration of those who have already trusted Christ. So don't touch these things. They're not for you. What is for you is the offer that Jesus gave to save you. And if you've never received that, you can do it right now. That's greater than these elements, a million times greater. Believers, take them to remember Christ. You can take the actual body and blood of Jesus by receiving him by faith right now. So as people around you hold this body and this this bread and this cup, you open your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers, you hold these things in your hands and in a minute our campus pastors and our teams will come and they will lead you in the taking of these elements of the Lord's table. Behold the wondrous mystery.